Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. First name Garrett, middle name Ashley, last name Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Originally from Glendive, Montana. But I'm content to be here in Greeley. I know some people think Greeley is kind of a dingy place. It does not have the glamorous reputation that other parts of Colorado do. But I, for one, particularly relative eastern Montana, think it's just fine. I think it's quite all right, especially the people we have come to know here in Greeley, particularly at Summit View Community Church, just across town in what is technically Evans, Colorado, Very fine people, and it is a blessing to know them. Speaking of those people, here in May, this past May, May 21st, 2021, I started reading The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, along with my friend and one of the pastors at Summit View Community Church, Paul Pavlik. It was his recommendation. We had been talking about the Puritans and theology in general, but particularly the Puritans, he was telling me, were probably the strongest influence in the development of his own personal theology and the way he approaches pastoring. And he said he read a lot of Puritans years ago when he really came to personal faith in Christ. He'd grown up Roman Catholic, but in college he found atheism to be very uh, unconvincing, very empty. And the more he was drawn to evangelical, Protestant, Reformed Christianity, the more he realized that What he had grown up with and what he had fallen into were not as true, were not as close to the truth of who God is and who we are and why are we here and what are we doing and where are we going and what's this all about as what he believes now. And if memory serves, he had not at the time read all the way through the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Maybe he had started it at one point. He'd read other Puritan works, but this one he had not read and he was interested in reading it. And he suggested, he threw it out there, you know, maybe we could read through some Puritans together. That could be fun. We discuss the book and go through it. And he threw out this one in particular. There were a couple others that were uh, also candidates, and maybe we'll get into those next. I think that would be fun. Uh, I really enjoyed over the past five months, uh, almost to the day, actually, going through the rare jewel of Christian contentment with Paul. But the way we did it, I'll just explain. Before I get into talking about the book per se, I want to give you the backstory here. The way we did it is we've got Signal, which is this instant messaging app slash program software. You can get it on your phone. You can get it on the computer. And Signal is really great because it's 
end-to-end encryption gives you the sense that this is a private conversation. Anymore, it's hard to feel as though anything we say at any time is private because if you're saying it online, well, then anybody could screenshot that or they maybe have algorithms that pick up this stuff and it's part of a metadata collection and maybe Signal doesn't even protect us from that. I don't know. But private instant messaging, I've come to really like Signal because I think it's not so great for our long-term health and happiness as individuals, as groups, as a society, that there is no privacy anymore. And privacy doesn't necessarily mean that you want to do something nefarious. It just means this is not for public consumption. Not everybody needs to know this conversation here because it would be very easy to take one little statement or one little comment out of context and run with it and make it seem like I'm saying something that I'm not saying. And I don't want to worry about that because I need to work through some things and I need to talk through some things and think through some things. And you should surely know because you're listening to this podcast, I have no problem with some some things being public and very public and as public as possible. If everybody in the world listened to my podcast, a lot of people would not like it and a fair amount would just be scratching their head, not quite sure what to do with the content. And some people would really love it. But with a private conversation over Signal, what we did was we would read a chapter at a time. And in my case, especially, I know Paul too, he might have been looking at the physical book as well. But I think both of us primarily, I exclusively went through the audiobook version and just listened a chapter at a time. And then with the Signal app, we would send just short, brief, you know, 20, 30 minute <laughs> audio messages uh, with commentary. And hey, just finished up chapter three and really wrestling with something Burroughs said. You know, I'm going to paraphrase and this is what he was talking about. And I don't know. I don't know if that's quite correct or I don't know what to do with it or that's a really hard thing to understand or, you know, personal application, that kind of stuff, right? So we just went back and forth, back and forth for the past five months. Some seasons were uh, busier over that five-month period. And so you know, it wasn't like every week. There's not that many chapters. But... Every few weeks, we'd go through a chapter, talk about it back and forth. And it was just, it was a great way to experience this book and to meditate on what it is that Burroughs has to say about contentment and the Christian life. And I'll just read for you this brief summary on goodreads.com. If you've never checked out Goodreads, I would recommend it to any book lovers out there. If you listen to this podcast, you probably enjoy books. And I have come to enjoy, in the absence of Facebook, having removed, purged Facebook from my life, having gotten off of Parler and Twitter and all these others, I'm enjoying more and more Goodreads because I like seeing these little status updates about what my friends and family. I've got a few family members that are on there, mostly friends. Uh, my 
my most literary-minded friends are on Goodreads, and I like seeing these little blurbs saying that they just started reading such and such a book, or they have just finished such and such a book, and here's a review, or here's the rating. And it's interesting, because I've got this pulled up right now, and I see that Philip Kaiser's rated uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment as of April 12th, 2020. He's a very conservative Presbyterian pastor from Omaha, Nebraska. He gave it five stars. Uh, Joseph Crampton, a friend of mine, he put it in the to-read category August 6th of 2020. Uh, a friend of a friend who I'm connected with on Goodreads marked it as to-read on June 1st of this year. Doug Wilson says it's really fine. That's all he said. Uh, but he gave it a five star, five out of five stars rating as of January 21st, 2009. And so, you know, what you'll find is you come on here and it becomes this way of experiencing books and seeing maybe some ideas uh, for how to read books, you know, what other people that you know got out of, uh, you know, certain things that you're thinking about reading or maybe you've read and you could see how closely your reading list matches other folks' reading lists. But the, the summary, the brief one-paragraph, two-sentence summary for The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment on Goodreads says, We live our lives in a discontented world, and it is all too easy for the Christian to share its spirit. This book remedies this spiritual disease in practical, biblical ways. Jeremiah Burroughs was... Baptized in 1601, according to Goodreads, admitted as a pensioner at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, in 1617. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1621 and a Master of Arts degree in 1624. His tutor was Thomas Hooker. Burroughs' ministry falls into four periods, all of which reveal him as a zealous and faithful pastor. First, from about 1627 until 1631, he was assistant to Edmund Calamy at Berry Street, Edmonds, Suffolk. Both men became members of the Westminster Assembly. Both men strongly opposed King James' Book of Sports. Both refused to read the King's proclamation in church that dancing, archery, vaulting, and other games were lawful recreations on the Lord's Day. Second, from 1631 to 1636, Burroughs was rector of Tivitshall, Norfolk, a church that still stands today, despite the best efforts of his patron, Burroughs was suspended in 1636 and deprived in 1637 for refusing to obey the injunctions of Bishop Matthew Wren, especially regarding the reading of the Book of Sports and the requirements to bow at the name of Jesus and to read prayers rather than speak them extemporaneously. Third, from 1638 to 1640, Burroughs lived in the Netherlands, where he was teacher of a congregation of English independence at Rotterdam, formerly ministered by William Ames. William Bridge was the pastor, and Sidrach Simpson had established a second like-minded church in the city. Thus, three future dissenting brethren were brought together, all of whom would serve as propagandists for congregationalism later in the 1640s. In the final period from 1640 to his death in 1646, Burroughs achieved great recognition as a popular preacher and a leading Puritan 
in London. He returned to England during the Commonwealth period and became pastor of two of the largest congregations in London, Stepney and St. Giles Cripplegate. At Stepney, he preached early in the morning and became known as the Morning Star of Stepney. He was invited to preach before the House of Commons and the House of Lords several times. Thomas Brooks called him a Prince of Preachers. As a member of the Westminster Assembly, Burroughs sided with the independents, but he remained moderate in tone, acting in accord with the motto of his study door, Opinionum variatas et opinientium unitas non sunt. Variety of opinion and unity of opinion are not incompatible. Richard Baxter said, if all the Episcopalians had been like Archbishop Usher, all the Presbyterians like Stephen Marshall, and all the independents, like Jeremiah Burroughs, the breaches of the church would soon have been healed. In 1644, Burroughs and several colleagues presented to Parliament their apologetical narration, which defended independency. It attempted to steer a middle course between Presbyterianism, which they regarded as too authoritarian, and Brownism, which they regarded as too democratic. This led to division between the Presbyterians and independents. Burroughs served on the Committee of Accommodation, which tried to reconcile the differences, but on March 9, 1646, he declared on behalf of the independents that Presbyteries were coercive institutions. Burroughs said he would rather suffer or emigrate than submit to Presbyteries. Ultimately, the division between Presbyterians and independents helped promote the cause of prelacy after the death of Cromwell. Burroughs pursued peace to the end. He died in 1646, two weeks after a fall from his horse. The last subject on which he preached became his Erenicum to the Lovers of Truth and Peace, an attempt to heal divisions between believers. Many of his friends believed that church troubles hastened his death. Burroughs was a prolific writer, highly esteemed by Puritan leaders of his day, some of whom published his writings after his death. Nearly all of his books are compilations of sermons. So that's Burroughs. And to say that he's a bit old school is, I think, an understatement. But again, going back to why Paul Pavlik and I read through the rare jewel of Christian contentment over the past five months, it seems like, and this was my comment to him before we started, before he came up with the suggestion of, you know, let's try and read some Puritans. I would recommend that you read some Puritans. The Puritans get such a bad rap, and they get this reputation in broader society, in pop culture references, for being no fun at all, for being joyless, for being stick in the muds. You know, take for instance his refusing to read publicly or to proclaim the king's proclamation in church that dancing, archery, vaulting, and other games were lawful recreations on the Lord's Day. Take that, for instance. It would seem, although I don't know this for a fact, just reading this summary, it would seem as though Jeremiah Burroughs did not approve of dancing, archery, vaulting, and other games on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. I grew up in a very strict observance of what is and is not permissible on Sunday. Sunday's the day that you go to church, and I was raised that Sunday was the Sabbath. Well, that's not quite correct, actually. Historically, 
The seventh day is Saturday. That is the Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's Day. And they are not necessarily the same thing, although the two have been conflated over the years with Sunday being the day that we get together. It's the first day of the week. So you're starting off your week getting together with other believers to worship the Lord, to sit under preaching, to contemplate what it is that the Lord has for you. Saturday is the Sabbath. Saturday is the day of rest. But in any event, historically, a lot of the thinking about Sabbath in church history transposed the requirements to rest and to not do any work out of reverence for God, out of the fear of God. All of that was transferred onto the Lord's Day or Sunday. And some people think that the best way to observe the Sabbath and to keep it holy is you don't go shopping, you don't play sports, you don't goof off, you don't play video games, you read your Bible and you rest and you have conversation and you do quiet things that are meditative. And dancing, obviously, could be construed as not meditative. <laughs> Very seldom have I ever thought of dancing and meditation together in the same thought. Archery. Can archery be meditative? Uh, if you're preparing for battle, then you're probably going to be thinking about fighting and amped up in that regard, if that's why you're practicing your archery skills. If you're preparing for hunting, you're probably thinking about hunting. Is that meditative? Is that restful? Not necessarily. Vaulting, I, I'll confess, I don't know what vaulting is, but okay. Uh, other games. So you shouldn't be goofing off. You shouldn't be just amusing yourself. The Sabbath is not a day for just goofing off and amusing yourself. That's not the same thing. Entertainment is not the same thing as rest. And actually, entertainment can be very exhausting. It can be just another way of exhausting yourself. And we can pursue entertainment as a way of avoiding thinking deeply about our lives and about God and about what is God's will for us. What are we going through? And towards that end, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin that he would oppose this proclamation, the book of sports, King James book of sports, two sides of the same coin that he would oppose that and also write the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Now, just embedded in the title, describing Christian contentment as Christian contentment. This is not general contentment. This is not a pop psychology book. This is not a self-help book. This is not a book about how to live your best life now, except insofar as the context is, what does God say about how we should be towards him, towards one another, towards our circumstances, in light of the fact that God is sovereign and he orchestrates events in our lives and he utilizes even suffering, even affliction in our lives 
to glorify himself, to accomplish his plans and his purposes, to grow us, to mature us, to discipline us, to lead and guide us. Even affliction, even affliction needs to be subjected to God. The rare jewel of Christian contentment frames how we think of our afflictions in very contrary ways to how the world approaches affliction. The world does not see affliction the way that the Christian is called to see affliction. Suffering, pain, disappointment, setback, heartbreak, sickness, loss, death even, dying. The world does not see those things the way that the Christian is called in God's word to see them. But Jeremiah Burroughs, even just in the title here, refers to Christian contentment as rare. So it's not common. It's not easy to find. And he calls it a jewel, which is to say that godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a jewel, a rare jewel. The rarer the jewel, the more valuable it is. Supply and demand. The rarer the jewel, the more valuable it is. And when we think of contentment that way, we should remember Philippians 2, 12 through 18. I was just going through this with some of the middle school boys on Wednesday night for youth group this past week. And I was struck because Paul and I are just finishing up Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. And I'm struggling with some of the things that Burroughs says because, honestly, I'm not feeling it. These are not intuitive ways to approach my own personal setbacks and suffering, my own difficulties, my own disappointments. But Philippians 2, 12 through 18, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now key in on 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That right there is what Burroughs is getting at. Chapters 1 through 8. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And some of the points on which he keys, I'm trying to remember if it was chapter 5, 4 or 5, one of those I really didn't care for. 
I didn't feel like it was his best. I felt like chapter seven and chapter eight were the best. Chapter one was good. But he even concludes the very tail end of chapter eight saying, it's a lot easier to preach about contentment than it is to become an expert, to understand contentment, to appreciate it, to internalize contentment. Because this isn't a academic treatment, first and foremost. Burroughs is well-versed on figures, stories, anecdotes from antiquity, from the Greeks and the Romans, from philosophers. He is educated and he is able to command stories and quotes to make his points, to highlight what it is that he's saying and do a compare and contrast. Here's what the world says. Here's what pagan philosophers outside of the church say. And we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to teach you to be content just for your own sake. We're trying to teach you to be content in the context of what the God of Christianity is like, the character of our most holy God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all creation. His character is supposed to inform our way of thinking about our afflictions and our setbacks and our suffering. And when we relate to setbacks in a way that is discontented and grumbling and murmuring, it really does say something about what we believe. It does. And you can perhaps go too far, and this is where I was hesitant on some of the things that Burroughs said because I felt like that could have been phrased a little bit more delicately and there's a frustration element with some of his complaints regarding how discontented people under his care are, how they complain about their health problems or their financial woes or political things going on, which is just proof positive that there's not that great of difference between the people that lived 400 years ago and us today. People are people in all times and places. We're still complaining about our health problems. We don't make enough money. We don't like the people who are writing the laws and executing the laws and judging whether the laws have been broken, whether the laws are good laws. The people Burroughs was shepherding in the 17th century were very familiar with all those sources of discontentment. And yet, that really is the reframing that Burroughs helps to do. Those circumstances are not the source of our discontentment in Burroughs' view. Our spiritual condition, our unregenerated, depraved condition spiritually is actually the source of our discontentment. Our grumbling, our murmuring has much more to do with what we believe about God and by extension what we believe about ourselves in light of God's word. And if you go through his book, which is not terribly long, really, I mean, it it took us five months, but that's because we were busy. He'd be busy, or I'd be busy, or we'd both be busy, Paul Pavlik and I. But you go through this book, and 
In my case, certainly, I kept thinking about my work situation. And I was thinking to myself, boy, I'm really not happy with some of the changes that are coming down the pike. I don't like that they've just taken away my drive time. I moved here on the understanding that I was going to be charging my drive time back and forth between the plant. And when I'm on a call out, that is the case. But somehow my normal Monday through Friday doesn't work that way, which I still don't understand. That seems inconsistent. You didn't tell me up front that I wasn't going to be able to start and stop my billable time until the plant or at the plant. Unless at the plant, I can't start my time and I can't stop my time unless I'm picking up parts or getting my vehicle work done or working on things from home. I don't like that. And I don't like that the raise I got the first raise in two years was 2%. And that doesn't even keep up with rising cost of living, inflation. So I actually have made less money in addition to hours being cut. The way some people are relating to me is very rude and it's very unprofessional and it's very undignified and they have no right to treat me the way that they're treating me, but they're never satisfied. They're never content. They're never pleased. Nothing is ever good enough. It always could be done faster and quicker and they don't understand it but then they don't want to hear an explanation of it. But then if they don't get an explanation, they're discontented. And if it's fixed, well, then what do we need you around for? And if it doesn't get fixed, well, then what do we need you around for? So they're just always complaining. And that, in turn, should be, for me, proof positive of how annoying it is to the good Lord, how much more annoying it is to the good Lord that he gives us all these good things and we're never satisfied. He gives us too much sunshine and we're complaining about it's too sunny. And he gives us a cloud and rain and we're complaining about I haven't seen the sun and I don't like all this rain. And we just complain. We complain all the time. It's never good enough. God gives us his word and it's boring. We don't want to read that. But then if he's silent, then we complain. Oh, Lord, why won't you explain these things to me? We're just discontented all the time. And what it really amounts to, what it really boils down to, whether this is people at work that I'm interacting with or it's me, myself, relating to God this way, what it really boils down to at the end of the day is whether we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And I'll just tell you flat out, I work with some people who think far more highly of themselves than they ought to. And they make a lot of excuses and they puff their chest out and they think that they are God's gift to the industry, to the company, to the world. Their feet don't stink. Everything that they believe is quite correct. And everybody else who disagrees with them on the smallest of things, who doesn't immediately appreciate their genius, is an idiot and worthless and get out of here unless you're willing to kowtow and kiss rings, bow and scrape, flatter them, they don't have any time for you. But here's the gig, here's the big question. Here's the, the big whack between the eyes. Am I not being that way in some measure towards God when I grumble and complain and prefer to focus 
obsessively on my afflictions rather than thanking God for his mercies. You know, I recently applied for a plant manager opening at my current employer, and I didn't get the position. It was offered to somebody else who's been there longer, and he's a great guy. Great guy. He'll do a great job with it. Very good temperament, very knowledgeable, treats people with respect, and I'm very happy for him. But I was thinking to myself, and I was grappling with, how do I have a good attitude about not getting the position? Because there's a part of me that wants it, and there's also a part of me that doesn't want it. And I'm thinking to myself, whether I get the position or I don't get the position, I have every ability to obsess over the afflictions. I didn't get the position. Ah, this sucks. This is no good. Or I get the position. Oh, look what I have to deal with. I got this and that and the other thing, and this person's not working with me, and that person's scheming over there, and this person's never liked me, and I'm not getting the credit that I deserve, and I don't have the resources that I need, and da-da-da-da-da, and everybody's awful all the time, and woe is me. And if I don't get the position, I could focus on all of the ways that that is not me getting my due. And I could really puff myself up and I could think more highly of myself than I ought to. And I could be the exact same sort of a character who is driving me crazy when it's not me, when it's somebody else and their ego. But I also could look at this and say, you know what? It was not God's will. That was not God's will for me. And God has a good purpose in not giving me this position and he will bless me in some other way. And he might just bless me by allowing me to continue being a technician because there is a great blessing in that. And I should be content with whatever station he puts me in because I work as unto the Lord. And if the Lord is best served in his estimation by me continuing to be a technician, well then blessed be the name of the Lord because I'm a servant. I'm his servant That needs to be my mindset. And if I am humble, and if I humble myself before the Lord, and I'm content in whatever circumstance I find myself, well, then God's pleased with that. And he'll reward that. And he might not reward that with some big fancy title and all the authority in the world. And maybe that's a blessing. And maybe that's a mercy. Because here's what I found a few years ago, and I've been... I'll be completely honest with you. I've been applying for jobs with other companies because I think it's time. And I'm going to do as excellent a job as I possibly can for my current employer while I seek the Lord's direction somewhere else. But I think it's time. I think based on the circumstances, which I don't want to complain about, I don't want to grumble about, and I don't want to murmur about, I have to be sensitive to the Lord's leading, and I do believe that the Lord is opening up doors to go somewhere else. I am very thankful for the prospect of being able to walk through a door to somewhere else. But I've been having to go back over my resume and my past experience, my curricula vitae. When I was a supervisor at ZI for four months, I found a lot of meetings and a lot of politics and a lot of jockeying back and forth with other supervisors and managers who wanted to sound important 
and they have their own agenda, which might not necessarily always be what's in the best interest of the company. And you're trying to wrestle with how do I maneuver here and how do I get accomplished what I'm trying to do in my part of the organization? How do I look out for the people that are under me and my customers and the other people in the organization who want our line of business to succeed? How do I protect my own sphere that I'm responsible for and also be blameless? And long story short, there was a lot of aggravation in that position. And it taught me an important lesson. That lesson is that not all that glitters is gold. Just because there's a big title there or a bigger title anyway, that doesn't mean that that is an improved situation. And you got to think long and hard before you go assuming that the grass is greener on the other side. Burroughs tells this story just as a example of his familiarity with classical antiquities, familiar with the Bible. He's also familiar with the Greeks and the Romans and history besides just biblical history. But he tells the story of Pyrrhus of Epirus and one of his lieutenants asking him what the plan is once they conquer Italy. Well, then we're going to conquer this other place and this other place and this other place and this other place. Basically, the whole known world. And then what will we do? Okay, well, then, then we will feast and enjoy our women and our food and our drink and our spoils, the spoils of war. To the victor go the spoils. Then we'll be content. And this lieutenant responds to Pyrrhus with a simple question. What's preventing us from doing that now? Why do we need to conquer the whole world in order to contentedly enjoy the fruits of our labors now, our families now? And Burroughs uses that example, that story, that anecdote, to make a statement, which is whatever it is that we're telling ourselves we need next, the next big thing, the next big break, that thing we're really striving for, there's nothing whatsoever which makes that the barrier between us and contentment. And furthermore, once we get that thing, if we, by God's grace, get that thing that we're pursuing, there's nothing whatsoever that says we're going to be content once we have that thing because we're just going to move the goalposts. If our attitude is informed by faulty beliefs, faulty attitudes, pride, conceit, selfishness, a disbelieving, scoffing, puffed up heart towards God, we're still going to have the discontented feeling and we might even have it harder and stronger and more thoroughly, more dramatically, once we get that thing that we thought we were going to be content once we had. And so the big idea is be content now. Think rightly about God's Sovereign will regarding your life now. Think more of your mercies from God, your blessings from God, and how good God is, regardless of whether you're receiving mercies or afflictions in the moment. Now. Don't wait. Why put it off? Why put off to some future year the task of 
getting your mind right, getting your heart right. And one of the things, one of the things that I grappled with was early on, and I told Paul this, I said, I think without closely examining it before, I've always thought of contentment as settling and being passive or lazy or cowardly. You know, the person who's got ambition is hardworking and courageous and bold and proactive. And the person who doesn't have those qualities, those characteristics, will settle. And they'll say that they're content, but they're not actually content. They're just unimaginative, uninspired, apathetic. And the more I grappled with this book by Burroughs for the past five months, the more I had to take a scalpel to a lot of these presumptions that I had. So for instance, somebody who's content is not apathetic. It's not that they don't care. Somebody who's content in a Christian way, along the lines of what God's word says about contentment, they care about the right things in the right order. First and foremost, you care about what is God's purpose for me? That's the first priority. And then everything else falls in line below that. And this really does get at a lot of what we find in the scriptures, even where it doesn't necessarily seem obvious that the issue is contentment or the subject is contentment. It really does come back to contentment again and again and again. Contentment is very closely related to faith, belief, trust, humility, worship, love. You know, look at one of the Ten Commandments being to not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's speaking to contentment. You could just as easily interpret that as a command to be content. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Be content with what you have, what the good Lord has given you. In all toil, there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty, as the Proverbs say. Well, that's talking about hard work versus just boasting of your plans and speculating. And what does that have to do with contentment? Well, actually... The connection to contentment here is sometimes people like me, people like I have been, spend all their time thinking about the next thing, the next opportunity. And right now, there's a proper place for that, right? I'm talking with recruiters. I'm having recruiters reach out to me. Hey, we saw your resume on LinkedIn. We think you'd be a really good fit. Would you be willing to have an interview with us about this opening that we are trying to fill? I've had conversations with two recruiters this past week who reached out to me. And that's fine, right? But if that's the only thing that we do, if that's all I ever do is talk with recruiters and I don't ever do the work, I'm not going to succeed. You can't succeed just talking about things. You have to do things. And lo and behold, when you do things... Your talk also is going to be taken more seriously. But mere talk leads only to poverty. Are we content with the work at hand? 
I have work to do right now. Am I content with that fact? Or is my talking just a way of expressing in so many ways? I'm not happy. I'm not happy with what I've got right now, what I've received from the Lord, first and foremost. Because I could have jerks who are making a mess of my work situation, saying untrue things about me, being unpleasant to me, being disrespectful, being abrasive, or not telling me things that I need to know. Okay, I'm not getting the information from you that I need to have from you in order to do my piece of it. And you know that, and you're withholding information because you're being petty right now. Wait a second, Garrett. What about Joseph and his brothers who hated him? You know, the story of Joseph is a story of a father with lots of children having a clear favorite among his sons. Joseph is dad's favorite. And Joseph gets a really fancy coat to let everybody know that Joseph is the favorite. And Joseph doesn't have the sense God gave a goose to keep it to himself, to play it down. He has a dream. And he tells his brothers the dream. And they decide, now we really hate him. Couldn't stand him before. Really resented him. We were jealous. We were discontented with how much our father loves us before, with what we've received from our father before. Now it's turned into a murderous homicidal rage. And we complain, it, we complain about it amongst ourselves. And now we've decided we're going to kill him. We're going to kill our brother. The oldest brother talks them out of killing Joseph and they decide they're just going to sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery. And you should read this. You should study this story of Joseph as a vignette of what God's plans and purposes in our afflictions might be. And how we should think longer term than just the momentary upset, setback, frustration. But when Joseph comes full circle, almost murdered by his brothers, sold into slavery, thrown in prison on false charges because he does the right thing, then pulled out of prison to explain the Pharaoh's dreams to him and what they mean, the interpretation of the dream, then put second in charge of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh, and then his brothers come a-calling, needing grain, because there's a famine in the region. Joseph toys with them a little bit, but then he reveals himself, and he tells his brothers what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And so Burroughs, at the very tail end of this book, he goes there and he says, even these people in our lives who are afflicting us, they're treacherous, they're dishonest, they're abusive, they're unkind, they're ungrateful, they're difficult, they're frustrating. They're instruments of the good Lord above. And God can use the affliction you have through and from and related to that person, those people, to mature you, to give you an opportunity to, as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, shine as lights in the world, to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is not 
a prescription for doing nothing when you have afflictions. But it is a reframing of the attitude we should have, the way we should talk about these things, the way we should think about these things, the way we should feel about these things. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if we can deal with the heart issue and really grapple with that, then it will change the way we talk about these things, the kinds of things we say, the kinds of things we don't say, the kinds of things we do and the kinds of things we don't do. If we are contented towards God in the midst of our trials, sufferings, setbacks, if it is sufficient for us, whatever his grace is, whatever his plans and purposes are, and we are looking to the good Lord to lead and guide how we conduct ourselves, we're working as unto the Lord, then there's a great blessing in that. It is a rare jewel. It's very valuable. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I got to leave it there, though. It's a Saturday morning, and I need another cup of coffee. To check out the rare jewel of Christian contentment. You will find it difficult. It is not a flattering portrait. I don't think it's necessary to take Every last sentence, every line, every claim, every assertion of Jeremiah Burroughs to heart. I think some of the things he says, those might just be his own discontentedness coming out towards people, towards hearing complaints that actually are legitimate. He just doesn't know what to do with them, doesn't want to deal with them. He's exhausted, maybe. But I would say on the whole... Burroughs does a very, very fine job of holding up a mirror using God's word, encouraging meditation. Let's think about these things long and hard for God's glory. And it's going to be difficult. And you're going to have to be content to some extent with your own human frailty because he gives more grace. It's by grace you've been saved. By grace through faith... Not of works lest any man should boast, including the work of working very hard to be more content, to be perfect. But as always, thank you for listening. Check out this book. Till next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.